And we begin with good day, sir. <laughs> Geeks come in all shapes and sizes. Um, and that they come into all kinds of things. That <laughs> uh, I was thinking more about the satanic panic. By the scholar Gary Gygax. Well, wait, hold on. I said good day, sir. Not defending Roman slavery by any no, stretch, by but... Oh God, that's bad. Let them vote. Fuck off. <laughs> when historians, and especially British historians, yeah. want to get cute. Oh, it's, it's in there. Uh, okay. it, it is not worth the journey. This is a Geek History of Time. Where we bring nerdery into the real world. I'm Ed Blaylock, a world history at the seventh grade, a world history teacher at the seventh grade level, and you are, sir. I am Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin teacher at the high school level, and I'm also a world history teacher again. Yeah, well, you're gonna be. Yeah. 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 So... Welcome to the club. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah. it's good to be back. I just wish it was under different auspices. <laughs> I so. can understand that. I'm gonna get to be an English teacher again oh. for one period a You're day so -so. again yeah. in the next year. So um, I'm excited about what you've what you've brought oh, tonight. Yes. Yes. Um, let's the, tell tell the people what it is we're gonna be we're gonna be talking about. All right. Well, uh, I will actually just set the Wayback Machine about a year ago. I went okay. and saw the movie Hereditary. Okay. I don't like horror movies, but a friend of mine does. She keeps inviting me to them. Mm. Okay, cool. I'll go right. out, go see a horror movie. I'm watching it. I'm like, shit, a possession movie? Like this? That's why? Like that? <laughs> that's so 1970s. Like, like. Uh -huh. And then I start thinking about. it. I'm like, why? Why are possession movies popular now? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, and and it's not just hereditary. No. Uh, you know, I I made the the terrible mistake uh, when when it came out of going to see the first Conjuring movie. Okay. Um, and I should I should point out for anybody in our audience who who isn't already aware, since you know nearly all of you are our friends, so most of you already know this. <laughs> um, I'm a wimp when it comes to horror movies. Like right. I I don't I don't enjoy them. I have Me never I have never enjoyed the sensation of being scared, mm -hmm. and I have an obsessive enough imagination right. that if I see something that freaks me out, I have a hard time letting go of it. And so they'll, they'll keep me awake I get for you. weeks. Yeah. You even take though, them home with you. Yeah. And I'm, I'm 44 years old. Right. I'm married. I got, I got a kid, but I still, you know, have, have that, that part of my brain that is like, okay, when I turn around in mm -hmm. the dark room and I look through the doorway into the hallway from my bedroom, am I going to see a shape there? Sure, you know, sure. And, and like, it's just, it sucks and I don't like it. So I don't like going to see horror movies, but I saw The Conjuring. Okay. I also happened to go see The Conjuring, which of course is kind of a possession movie. Okay. Um, and it's also, a, it's mostly a haunted house movie. Mm -hmm. And I made the wonderful mistake of going to see that right before friends of mine and I were going to be shopping for a Houses. place to move into nice. together. Um, I actually went to uh, my best friend and his wife and said, I need to borrow your dogs. Oh, to see if these... Because, because yeah. well, because the first thing that happens, these people move into this house, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they, they show up and it's, you know, clean cut American family, three kids, two parents, mm -hmm. lapsed Catholics, which is a big deal. Oh, yeah. I'll Wait, be you, you'll get that. into yeah. that. Yeah, I know. Um, and, and, you know, and they, and they show up and they've got the family dog and mm -hmm. they bring the family dog up to the threshold and the dog loses his mind. Yeah. Refuses to come into the house, snarls, barks, and they wind up chaining the dog outside overnight. 
stay in the house overnight. They wake up the following morning and the dog has somehow strangled itself on the chain they used to put it, to, to stick it in place. Here's the deal, folks. If the dog won't go into the house, cancel fucking escrow. Yeah. Like... There's a I'm, website out there called Does the Dog Die? Does the Dog Die? Yeah. 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 But I'm, I'm just saying as a yeah. practical matter in the yeah. real world, yeah, yeah. when you're buying a home, if you're moving into a home, mm-hmm. when you're going to rent a place, sure. like if the dog freaks out, if yep. the cat freaks out, if you're just walking around like, I don't know, man. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to say my wife would have to work really hard to convince me not to listen to that voice in the back of my head. Sure. Sure. Because... I'm as rational as the next guy. Until. I'm I'm Catholic, so there's a certain level of, you know. So I, not I, as I rational have, as the not, next not, guy. Well, not, not, not as rational as all of the next guys, <laughs> but, you know. And and most of the time, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, science, mm-hmm. scientific, logical, rational sure. individual. Uh, but no, if the dog starts freaking out, I'm going to have a real hard time staying rational like that. Totally fair. So, so... Anyway, possession movies. Yeah. Uh, so I saw this movie and I was thinking to myself, what the shit? The last time I remember a possession movie being popular was the 1970s, the early 70s. Oh, that's why. And so it kind of formed a little hypothesis. I, okay. Again, I go to genre type movies. Yeah. And I like to look at them as, as I look at a lot of things, as a snapshot. What's going on right now? What yeah. is this form being used to teach us? Yeah. And in that, I can really intellectually enjoy these movies. Okay. Um... Emotionally, I don't really get scared uh, of stuff like that. I get okay. scared of existential threats. Okay. Um, and also, I have a list of very irrational fears that I have. Okay. Uh, but uh, by and large, uh, movies don't scare me. Jump scenes don't really get me. Um, okay. There have been a few uh, movies where I was just like, wow, this is really cool. But I still end up just a little outside of my own head. So I'm not fully you, experiencing you have, it. You have a level of detachment that allows you to to not to, to intellectualize the whole experience. Yeah, yeah. This is, Jesus, if you could teach me how to do that, I'd be able to go see so many more movies. Well, as the veteran of two marriages, I would say it doesn't always serve you. Uh, <laughs> Granted. Yeah. Granted. So okay. I've had a therapist say, you retreat into the intellect. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay. Okay. So uh, I started doing some research and, and kind of poking around and... I came up with this hypothesis that possession movies tend to be more popular and do better at the box office when people don't trust their government. Okay. And that's why I've titled this Possession Movies, uh, Possession is Nine-Tenths of the Government. Okay. So uh, this will be an exploration of societally what happens uh, when possession movies uh, are at their apex. Now, okay. does not necessarily mean <clears throat> that I've covered all the bases. It doesn't mean I've covered all of your favorite possession movies. Okay. Feel free to tell me on the Twitter and, and uh, anywhere else that you see me around town uh, that, you know, I got it wrong because I left out Fallen with Denzel Washington or something like yeah. that. Uh, but I looked at the ones that were really heavy hitters, the seminal works, as okay. it were, um, and uh, I, I found some pretty compelling evidence. Okay, the ones so. that really grabbed the public consciousness and drove yeah. it where they wanted it to go? Yeah, or or reflected the public consciousness in such okay. a way um, that was artistically and commercially very viable. Okay. So uh, possession movies have actually been a part of our movie catalog from the beginning. Really? Yeah. Uh, okay. As best as I can tell, I got all the way back to 1924, and there was a movie called White Shadows. It was British. Um, it was an 82-minute feature film. Okay. Uh, written by Alfred Hitchcock. 
Oh. It's one of the hundred that he made before he came over here. Yeah. Um, taken from a novel by Michael Morton. So that means that there's even further back literature talking oh, about yeah. possession. Well, I mean, you know, possession has been the, the idea of spiritual possession, demonic possession, mm -hmm. has been, you know, a part of cultures all over the world going back. I Bronze mean, to, Age. To, oh, yeah. beyond. And beyond. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, if, if you if you look hard enough, you can find it in every culture. Yeah. I mean, of course, obviously, it's all over the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, we are legion out of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. you know, Jesus casting those those demons out as probably the most famous example. Is that the ones he sent into story? the pigs who then ran off the cliff? Yes, yes. I remember that only because I uh, once had a go back and forth with some friends of mine and I about if you read it backwards what it is. And if okay. you read it backwards, he takes the demons out of pigs that he has resurrected from a river uh, and put them all into one woman's head. Uh, okay. Then he ruins a wedding by turning the wine, wine into, into water. water. And then it ends with a bunch of people stealing his gifts on his birthday. And on Christmas, yeah. no less. On Christmas, no less. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah, we are Legion. Yeah, okay. Uh, so this movie uh, was actually discovered, like, God, what was it? Underneath an ice rink in Ottawa or something. I might really? Have, I might be blending stories, but okay. only 42 minutes of this movie have survived. Um, because, I mean, these things were written, were printed on, like, very flammable film, and there's well, no, you know, what do you do with it when you're done yeah, with it? Yeah, you know? whatever it was. Uh, celluloid broke celluloid, down. Celluloid, yeah. But it's it, before it's, celluloid. It was the yeah, really it's, it's flammable the, it's the shit. ugly, horrible, flammable stuff. Yeah. yeah. So the, the, the plot is that there's a woman in Paris. She's possessed by her twin's ghost, uh, the twin who had saved her life but died. Uh, it's very melodramatic. It's 1924. It involves a sister going bohemian for a while. Uh, and the possession not being particularly malicious, actually. Okay. Um, the next one that I could find, because again, it's only 42 minutes, so it's very fragmented. Yeah. Next one I could find was from 1933 called Supernatural. I'm sticking largely to English-speaking film. Okay. Uh, but this is a talkie. Uh, and this one actually has the first real hint of menace from a possession. Uh, and it involves a black widow murderess whose spirit is inhabiting a young woman to get revenge on a man uh, who himself is a faux spiritualist uh, who wronged her. Wronged the Black, the Black Widow? Widow's okay. ghost, yeah. Okay, all right. What's interesting here to me is that Carol Lombard and Randolph Scott are in it. Oh, wow. Carol Lombard is a comic actress, largely, who yeah. took the lead in My Man Godfrey. Okay, yeah. Yeah, she got going on the, the uh, screwball comedies. Yeah. Quite a bit. yeah. I, you know, I need to do an episode on screwball comedies. Yeah. Yes, yeah, you've do. mentioned it a couple yeah. times. Uh, uh, Randall, it Scott. should be noted my yeah. my mother's middle name is Carol with oh. an e on the end for from Carol Lombard. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, pouring one out for Carol. Yeah, uh, Randolph Scott, you might recognize yes. as the guy who could ricochet bullets everywhere in a western. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this, so what we're saying is this was a departure for both of them. I think it was before was, they got was, to where oh, they were going. Okay. Oh, this so, is 1933. So was, okay, so it was a stepping stone for yes. both of them. It was, yes. it was that you know secret shame. Right, or maybe you know, not early, even shame. Early shame. Yeah, this was to, Denise to Richards. Tropes. This was term. Denise Richards being one of the white singing women in Loaded Weapon, the right. National Lampoon spoof yeah. of Lethal Weapon. Yeah. You know, it's it's like that. She was in that. I I I'd go so far as to say that's an example of a of a secret shame. Maybe just gonna I don't say know. spoof movies aren't yeah, really well. Yeah, all right. But so essentially, possession movies were always around, right? Yeah, uh, they tended to follow the same basic formula for decades. 
but then by the 2000s, they're starting to play within that formula. Um, but they were never really big money makers. They were just something that got made. Uh, they never moved the needle very much culturally. Um, they were just kind of there as a type of horror. There were monster movies that were far more successful, mm-hmm. um, especially in the 1950s and 60s in the atomic era where everything's radiation. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, mm-hmm. talking about monster movies, mm-hmm. one of the classic monster movies. Yeah. Uh, speaking about you know my experience with, with horror movies mm-hmm. being the way it is, my dad grew up in South Florida, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, and so the environs of the creature from the Black Lagoon mm-hmm. were, you know, just down the street from where he was yeah. growing up. And yeah. so he went and saw a creature from the Black Lagoon with friends of his, and it kept him awake for weeks. Wow. Because the the image of the monster's hand reaching right. through the window, the clawed webbed you oh know, yeah, just 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 barely missing the back of the heroine's head. Right, just like he yeah. had to, he had to you know in the stifling hot summers he had to oh. shut the windows to his bedroom because oh, it poor freaked guy. him out so bad. Yeah, so it runs in the family. <laughs> so but yeah. yeah, monster movies did better. Yeah. Uh, so the standard formula for most possession movies from from this time from the 1930s through the 1970s is essentially this: there's a woman, pretty woman. Usually a young woman with no children, okay. often blonde, not necessarily, uh, gets possessed. Okay. Okay. She's often a child, or very nubile at least. Okay. okay. So very young woman. Mm-hmm. Okay. Kind of follows the standard pre-auteur uh, era, uh, but even the standard auteur era as well, because... Mm-hmm. Men, <laughs> men were the directors and the producers during the auteur era, so, so it's still the same. Yeah. The formula doesn't change very much because male yeah. gaze is male gaze. Yeah, that's you a want good to, you want to have you want to have a, a pretty woman on the screen because visually that's you that, know yeah. what what gets male eyeballs. Right. And for a long time that was all anybody you know was thinking Thought about was the demographic. They, that yeah, was, that was the demographic. Which, in fairness, that was for it, it was aimed at white male eyes. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Because white male eyes were the only ones who were assumed to have disposable income. Yes. Uh, so the women were essentially plot devices. They were essentially MacGuffins. Um, and in possession movies... For some dude for most or movies. group of dudes to solve. Yeah. It, to was, solve. it was a problem. You got to rescue mm-hmm. rescue the damsel. Damsel is object. Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. I'm with you. Uh, in possession movies, they stop being plot devices. They start being vessels for plot devices. Okay. A bit of a demotion. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Now, the interesting point I find, uh, the interesting point of focus I find here in the late 60s, early 70s, is their use of a vessel. Think of what young, virginal, nubile girls represent. Um, a lot of things. Yes. What, I, I mean, yeah, there's, yeah. there's every college anthropology course I took mm-hmm. is, is clamoring inside my head to, to try to, you know, mm-hmm. come up with an answer to that. Right. But yeah, I mean, uh, potential fertility, uh-huh. uh, innocence, mm-hmm. uh, uh, purity. Mm-hmm. Glad uh, you said that word. That's good. You know, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. If, if we're if we're talking about specifically yeah. virginal, mm-hmm. then then I mean, yeah. By yeah. by its by its very nature, virginal right. just as a concept, as a construct. Yeah. Highly problematic, all you know. Yeah, well, yeah, but it, but but all of the all of the tropes that are associated with it mm-hmm. have have some kind of a tie to innocence, purity, lack of worldliness. Very white. 
Uh, well, yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Togapura, I'm thinking, you know, yeah, yeah, Candida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so think also in the 1960s, 1970s about advertising and how it was, what's the word I'm looking for? Sexist as hell? Creepy and pedo as fuck. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Tell me what you see here. Oh, dear. Oh, yes. Oh, Jesus. This one? Oh, yes. Oh, God. Go ahead and tell tell oh, the uh, audience. Crap on a cracker. You bring <laughs> this one. You got to go to this one. Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, it's it's a cosmetics ad uh-huh. for Love's Baby Soft. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Because innocence is sexier than you think. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I immediately... I, I, you know, this this is presentism, but sure. uh, Jean Benet Ramsey immediately like really comes to mind, to yeah, forefront of my brain, yeah. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the image in this ad is of a brunette, mm-hmm. interestingly, yes, to point yes. out, uh, girl, yeah, probably no older than seven, yeah, um, with with very heavy lipstick on, yes, uh, artfully styled curled yep. uh, brown hair uh very very pale peaches and cream complexion uh-huh. uh blue eyes uh-huh. should be noted brunette but blue eyes come hither look um yeah yeah it's it's I okay really that we're uncomfortable don't wanna, i know i don't i don't i don't also look at look uh, right here at the phallic nature of the item being sold yeah the yeah. the whatever the items of cosmetics are that's that's being sold mm-hmm. i, I want to say probably lipstick but i could be wrong uh, i don't know are are cylindrical yep. and they have a dome shaped top yeah on them okay so and that's... and just i'm sorry but the line because innocence is sexier than you think they're, they're, they could have used that as a line mm-hmm. without it necessarily being gross. Yeah, if they had. If they'd had, you know, an adult model. An adult model, yeah. You know. Would have been good. Fresh face, sure. young young woman. Marilyn Chambers, you know, even. Yeah. You know. You know. But a but a but a literal child clutching right. a teddy bear. A white teddy bear. A white teddy bear. Um, now, yeah. Here's, here's another one. Oh God! Toddlers and tiaras is gonna like show up in my nightmares for a week. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is a serial ad. Yes. For tricks, this this predates tricks is for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a mother mm-hmm. uh, standing behind a daughter. They're both wearing a very I I would actually say fifties housewife kind of kind of frocks. Yeah. But but this is early sixties, which is yeah. really what we are thinking of when we think of the fifties. Yes. Um, with, with, uh, uh, what do they call that kind of collar? Yeah, just a uh, very high uh, collar. Uh, Looks like something well, well, that, like, I, your I, mom Peter probably... Pan. High, okay. high Peter Pan-shaped collar. That's, Looks like something your mom would have worn in her prom photo or in her high school yearbook photo. It, yeah, yeah, well, maybe earlier in high school yearbook photo, but, but yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and the mother is wearing, I'm going to say that's kind of a pale teal. The daughter mm-hmm. is in pink. Um, the mother is smiling very maternally over mm-hmm. the child's head as she pours cereal into a bowl. The child has what I have to say is a disturbingly blank thousand yard stare kind mm-hmm. of expression. And the tagline makes me want to barf. When a woman's five, she needs love sub subtitle and a little applied psychology. Yep. 
Wow. Yeah. Oh, it gets better. That, oh, God, there's more. Oh, yeah. All right. So now we have, uh, again, a cosmetics ad. Uh-huh. Um, the, the title at the top of the page is Forbidden Fruits. Yes. Um, and this, this time it is, thank God, at least a, a probably 20 something. Yes. Looks 20 something. Anyway, so I'm going to say that to myself, young woman, uh, of course, very, very perfectly made up, Mm -hmm. uh, utilizing a lip gloss, uh, called kissing slicks from Maybelline. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she is, uh, there's a fruit basket, uh, in frame in front, two fruit baskets in frame in front of her, one of them with, uh, citrus and the other one with a watermelon. And she's wearing a pink T-shirt with the slogan, I'm not as innocent as I seem across the front of it. Now, here's the deal. Uh That's that's, that's clearly trying to press a set of buttons. Yep. That's not, that's not, I'm going to say that's creepy, but that's in a different category of creepy. It is. From, from certainly the first one. That's slimy. This this kind of greasy. Not, yeah. This is like oil can oil can Harry, but it's not not disgusting. Okay, now we're getting into the hardcore misogyny. <laughs> this is this is where the sexism. You're talking about you know pedo is hell. There's, yeah. there's no there's no pedo here. But no, this it's is not. Sexist no, I started with the out. pedo shit. This yeah. is the creepy shit. Uh, this is this is a cigar ad. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for tipped cigars, which which are, are the ones that have a like a cigarette holder, right? So you don't have to use a plug cutter or a clipper. Um, so so these are weefle cigars, is what we're saying. These are cigars for guys who don't actually want to smoke real cigars. So Nick Fury. Uh, it, well, yeah, yeah, I, I like, yeah, I forgot he used yeah. the yeah. All right, well, he's the one exception. <laughs> but um, blow in her face, and she'll follow you anywhere. <laughs> It is, it is. She's got a, it all over her face, too. A really, yeah, there, oh, God. <laughs> there is, there is, there is a truly very attractive, interestingly. Dark complected. Ethnic, dark complected, yep. uh, Latina mm-hmm. looking woman, uh, dark hair, very dark eyes. I couldn't find the date um, on this, but I wouldn't be surprised to know that it probably came out around the same time as West Side Story. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. And anyway, a a man, uh, dark haired gentleman, mm-hmm. uh, can't really see very much about his complexion, but he's a he's a stand in, yeah. Uh, and he is literally blowing smoke in in this woman's face, and the woman's reaction is almost uh, she's she's clearly entranced, which she's making eye contact, which she is which... she is making eye contact, which isn't what would happen because. Having accidentally had cigar smoke blow into my own face, it hurts. Okay, that's not really like, what's being blown in her face. I know. Okay, I understand that, and I just I I I get it. Okay. I know. Okay, and and eye contact is is a is, thing is a wonderful thing. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, um, yeah. The Freudian imagery is is mm-hmm. obvious. I am gonna say though, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, <laughs> yeah, but that, not that right there. there. Yeah, no. Yeah, um, I, right, I'm probably leaning into the microphone that far. I probably completely blew the levels out right there. But anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've seen this one. Yep. Uh, before, um, it's an ad see, for men's pants. It's it's yes, it's for for men's uh, uh, slacks, mm-hmm. uh, uh, specifically ones made out of Dacron. 
so this this dates it. They make a point of saying they're yeah. Dacron, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't think anybody actually uses anymore. No, um, because it, it there are better materials now. Um, and so anyway, it's a Slacks ad. So the the male figure in this ad is only viewed from about the navel uh, slightly down. slightly above the navel down. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he's, uh, he does have a, we can see a necktie, yep. uh, that, that is, you know, properly worn with, mm-hmm. with the end of the tie down at his belt buckle. Um, and, uh, there is a tiger skin rug underneath him and he is resting his foot on the head of the tiger skin rug. Sounds as, like no as problem whatsoever. Would, as, as one would do in his a manful victory kind of, kind of confidence pose, right. superhero pose kind yep. of thing. Uh, however, um, the the head of this particular tiger is not a tiger's head. It is a, a woman's head with, with a rather bemused expression on her face. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tagline is, it's nice to have a girl around the house. She has nothing so to do with the tone, pants. The tone of, of conquest is unmistakable here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, dominance. That's, that's dominance. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So wear so, wear our pants. You'll get you'll get the girl. Right. Yeah. So so what we're saying here is uh, big surprise. Right. The '60s and early '70s were a time of rampant, blatant sexism mm-hmm. that was just so ubiquitous nobody realized it was sexism. Yeah. It was the and, way things were. Yeah. And, and so and, having women as the vessel for your plot device mm. was not that big a deal. Okay. Yeah. So here's the formula, right? Right, yeah. Um, pretty young white girl gets yeah. possessed. Yes. Does things that we, as men, would find uncomfortable for her doing for herself. Okay. But we have it's far... It's a power dynamic. Yep. Okay. But we have far less problem with her allowing it to be done to her by an older white man in a position of authority. Okay. The girl in The Exorcist uses the crucifix to masturbate. Yes. She uses several sexual terms to unsettle the older men. Yes. Now, her agency in that, it's not really her agency because she's possessed. Because she's possessed. But so, she's still so, using the words, and it's yeah. still very unsettling, despite ads like that. Yeah. Eventually, an older man, Max von Sydow here, yeah. uh, typically one who waves off her sexual uh, aggression and her advances at some point, uh, he saves her and rescues the world from her and whatever possessed her. Yeah. That's your formula. Yeah. Really, that formula is a reassertion of male hierarchical, patriarchal power. Papa knows best, right? Well, yeah. White males in authority, older white males in authority, older white males in institutional authority. Older white males in institutional religious authority. Yep. Uh, Moral authority. If we're going to do the layer cake. Yeah. Yeah. It's still interesting that, uh, which we found previously innocent, even as we fetishized it and sexualized it, is now a source of scary. I really don't like we there. Yeah, I, as a culture. I want to, I want to. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't even alive, man. Squick. But yes, yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, it's the vessel yeah. of scary. And it's the whole reason that these movies are scary. And here's why. The government, our democracy, is filled with white men in power with moral authority. And it was no longer an institution that we could reliably trust. As such, our anxiety rose, and we needed a safe way to express that. Okay. And since it was the white men in power whom we'd always trusted, whom we'd elected to steward us, the blame could not be laid at their feet. It had to be something that we could still save 
using them. Okay. It had to be something that could be easily reversed. Okay. Utilizing those same tools of hierarchical, the patriarchal yep. authority. Yeah. Reass- okay. Reasserting its goodness. Okay. At a time where its goodness was highly suspect. Okay. And we couldn't not face it. Okay. Now, this is not unlike ancient Rome, by the way. <laughs> Slaves upsetting the natural order of things was always scary to the masters. Uh, and because slaves were in very trusted positions. They handled your food. They took care of your children. They, they put you well, in a bed. Many of them were government officials towards, the, true. towards the later empire. Yeah. That's um, the whole reason their economy turned into a complete joke. But, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's easy to outsmart an inattentive master. Uh, it's easy to slit his throat and to escape. Uh, so plays in the early Republic were often just lifted from Greek plays, by the way. The Romans did yeah. nothing original. Um, they would reflect this. Pseudolus, uh, upon which uh, a funny thing happened on the way the forum was based. Um, yeah, does played this... Seneca's in that in high school. Oh, nice. First uh... time around. <laughs> uh, played by Buster Keaton yes. in the movie. And he actually spoke. Um, but uh, Pseudolus does this masterfully. So you've got this slave spending the whole play outsmarting his master... Um, using his cunning and his intelligence in a way that threatens to deprive the master of the master's property himself. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, he makes a deal and says, if I do this, you'll give me my freedom or you'll give me 20 silver pieces mm-hmm. and I can buy my freedom. And if I fail, then you can still beat me, um, which he could have done anyway. The master goes for it. Um, and ultimately, it an- ends with his plans not quite coming to fruition, uh, and so we start the next day anew with the slave rightfully black back into his place. Everybody's relieved. Yeah. That's the, the tension that builds the yeah. humor, right? Yeah. Well, and and a moment to talk about the difference between drama and comedy. Yes. It is a comedy. So at the end of a comedy, status quo ante is restored. Yes. Whereas at the end of a tragedy, status quo ante is utterly shattered. Everybody dies. Mass panic. Hysteria. Yes. Yeah. Now, the Romans couldn't really conceive of a world without slaves, uh, where the masters didn't rightfully own their slaves. So as such, there wasn't any need for a play criticizing the very unstable practice of slavery itself. You're not going to see an Uncle Tom's cabin in ancient Rome. No. No. Well, because the institution was, yeah. in many ways, as we've spoken about, mm-hmm. was in many ways fundamentally different. But yeah, oh, the, yeah, yeah. The, the limitations of the, of the classical mindset in regard yeah. to the possibility of there being some other right. something. Because slavery had always existed in every civilization ever up to that point. Yeah. So what? Yeah, that's, it's yeah. normal. Yeah. Uh, so, so I just point that out to point out that like regularly society will challenge itself to a point and then the end of the movie, return to Coda. Okay? Yeah, well, Apollonian. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's it exactly. Is, we we want to see, we want to see our our fears expressed mm-hmm. and ultimately overcome. Exactly. Hey, Geek Nation, it's Damien. And Ed, and we're here to pitch a book at you. Uh, It's uh, from a good friend of mine and a good friend of the show, Bishop O'Connell. The books are the American Fairy Tale Trilogy, The Stolen, The Forgotten, The Returned. If you're a fan of urban fantasy, you're going to love these. If you're a fan of Celtic folklore, uh, you're going to love these even more. Uh, They're very well researched uh, in terms of the the stories and everything that they tie into. Uh, And he's a very good guy. And like I said, a good friend of the show. So uh, go out, pick them up, read them. And now, back to us being smart, Alex. 
Exactly. So back to the 60s and 70s. Yes. Uh, Rosemary's Baby. Yes. Right? 1968. Okay. Grossed 33 million, 395 thousand dollars. Big, big bucks. Do, do you yeah. have the figure on what the budget for the film was? I don't. Okay. I don't. I because I'd yeah. really be curious to see in in right. You said it was 60, 68. 68. What in sixty eight dollars? What the budget was of the movie? Sure. Versus its. its I can tell you that it profit. pulled in two hundred forty five million dollars in today's money. Sweet Jiminy Crickets. Yeah. So now here's here's mm-hmm. I'm 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 gonna ask this. Sure. And I'm just going to ask the question sure. for now. Um, did you, in, in the process of researching this, did you get into the relationship between Rosemary's Baby and the author of Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and the author of The Exorcist? Not so much because I was okay. mostly looking at the the correlation between this and trust in the government. Okay. Because there's there's a point when once yeah. we've once we've gotten a little farther, there's there's a point I do want to come yeah, yeah. back to to talk about it because Absolutely. because the one of them. The Exorcist was a reaction to Rosemary's Baby. Yes, that. Okay. and I get into okay. that when I read some of the reviews. Okay, all right, so, all right. So, so trust in the government in 1968 was 55%. Okay. And it's on a downward trend. Yeah. Steep decline from 1964, by the way. Okay. In 1968, President Johnson was a proven liar. Yes. Uh, Humphrey was accusing protesters of starting police riots in Chicago. During oh, the convention. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Robert Kennedy is killed. Yeah. Martin Luther King is dead. Yeah. Malcolm X is dead. Yeah. Watts, Detroit, Harlem, all of them had been on fire by Liter- this point. Yes, literally. Yeah. yeah. Our social fabric wasn't just unraveling. It was breaking down at the basic molecular level. Yeah. Richard Nixon got elected president with a secret plan to get us out of a war that was increasingly unpopular. It was still more popular than it was unpopular, though. We're still two years out from Kent State, where people, yeah, a majority of Americans supported killing those kids. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this war, the Vietnam War, was a war that we'd gotten into under false pretenses from prior leaders whom we'd trusted quite a bit. Truman, Ike, JFK, all had well above 60% uh, approval, trust. Approval yeah. and trust ratings, yeah. Um, the general zeitgeist was beginning to fracture even more and more. Uh, the government wasn't something that we could exactly trust anymore. <clears throat> and our innocence as a democracy wasn't as easy to point to. There was okay. blood on everyone's hands. Yeah. It wasn't an extant innocence. It's as though some sort of malevolence was in our country. And we were unable to figure it out or even face what had gotten it there. It, it couldn't be the white men who were in power... It had to be something else. Yeah. And eventually we could be saved if we just elected the right white man to power. And everybody picked Nixon. Whoops. But <laughs> Well, you know, it's yeah. it's it's it's, it's yeah. an interesting it's an interesting lesson in in what it is that looks like the right answer when you're in those kinds of circumstances. Well, and what looks like the right answer absent a writer answer. I mean, Robert Kennedy got shot in the head while he was in L.A. Yeah. That really changed things. It yeah. made Humphrey the front runner. Humphrey yeah. was the centrist establishment candidate. Yeah. This should sound familiar. Um, so, you know, and, and RFK was killed a scant five years later after JFK. And he was killed within months of Martin Luther King. I mean, there were a lot of like... There was a lot of... 
There's trauma. a lot of yeah, a lot of a lot of a lot of societal level. A trauma. lot of luminaries who look like they could actually take the ball and run with it and bring us back to where a lot of hinge points. Yeah, in history, swung yeah. the wrong way because people kept getting killed. What what Herbert in Dune referred to as cusps. Yes. Um, and if you look at the political landscape, the advertisements, as I just showed you, Ugh. they got to be much more about the personality of the one running. And how he would write the ship, whichever way you leaned. So you remember when uh, Johnson runs against uh, Goldwater? Oh my God! Yeah, do I remember? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the oh, what's what's the it's the flower the flower the flowers ad and then the countdown and yeah and the nuclear bomb exploding yeah, yeah. I'm trying and to remember zooming what, in what on the, the girl's the eye. Slang. I'm trying to remember what the slang term or the the, the mm-hmm. nickname is for that ad. But the other one, the other one that really mm-hmm. caught my attention mm-hmm. uh, uh, in in you know reading about that time period was uh, the long form, mm-hmm. three or four or five minute long mm. advertisement uh, in which um, an actor mm-hmm. read an an interview with a Republican, uh, essentially Republican against Goldwater. A Republican for Johnson. Okay. Uh, saying, you know, I'm a Republican. My whole family, we've been Republicans forever. And this guy, this guy Goldwater, is nuts. Well, we Goldwater... Can't, we can't, we can't, we can't trust him. He's, yeah. he's unhinged, you know. And, you know, I, I you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I can't, I can't vote for this guy. I have to vote for, I have to vote for Johnson for the good of the country. Right. For the good of the country. Even though you disagree with him Even in a lot of ways. Even though you disagree with him on a lot of things... Even though, you know, our team, their team, for the good of the country, just saying. Well, it's a good thing we learned from that. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the guy in the ad is going to stand as a bulwark and protect you from the misguided ideology of the other side. Not from the other guy, but from the misguided ideology. So, yes, Goldwater is a personality that you're running against, but he represents this darker, uh, more damaging version of Republicans malevolent, than ever malevolent, before. This, this darker, yeah. malevolent, in, in, uh, uh, incorporeal yes. ideology. It's, it's, it's yeah. an ideology. It's a, it's a spirit. Right. It's not. It's not a, right. a person you can touch. You know, right. Okay. All right. No, I mean, I see, if Goldwater I see meta- wins, I see the metaphor here. Yeah. If Goldwater yeah. wins, there will be nuclear war. That little girl will get blown up. Think of the children. Yeah. Think of the children. By the way, that little innocent girl playing with flowers, blonde hair, uh-huh. white girl, stand in for our country. Yeah. Innocence, y'all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So by 1968, this war that we had started. Uh huh. Damn near 20 years earlier. Yeah. By starts and fits. Uh, these social issues that we began trying to fix. Well, not really, but sort of, but not really. Yeah. Yeah. There were attempts. But not really, but sort of, but not really. Yeah. They were both growing way beyond what felt safe and controllable. Mm-hmm. Nothing was going as promised, and it was getting more and more uncomfortable. Rosemary's baby. Here's the plot. A young couple moves into an urban environment, which they're immediately warned against because cannibalism and murder. <laughs> I had forgotten the cannibalism part, but yes. Cannibalism. Yeah. Rosemary meets a young drug addict in the city. 
uh-huh. like you do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, heroin's starting to come back to America from Vietnam. Oh, right. It's invading yeah. the urban centers because that's where the poor are. That's also where a lot of African-Americans are. And Nixon did a really good job of painting heroin as a black people drug. Oh. And pot as a black people as drug. As a black people drug, yeah. Yeah, that silent majority racist bullshit. Yeah. Um, so we're already reinforcing as much as we can here yo, in this yo, movie. We're yeah. pulling on tropes. Anyway, they see some weird shit. They decide to make a baby. Okay. Just what you do. Like you do. Uh, and there's a scene where she's possibly drugged and then raped by a demon with a cult of naked people watching. The next morning, she has scratches on her body uh, and she asks her husband what happened and he informs her that, uh, well, you fell asleep, but I had sex with you anyway because I know that we were trying to conceive and I didn't want to deprive you of of that. He's a real team player. Real team player. And just, yeah, the how times change mm-hmm. in terms of norms and spousal rape wasn't a crime behavior. back then was the Didn't very exist. idea was was a contradiction in terms yeah yeah so it comes out that the building used to be a place for a bunch of satanists like you do uh like you see in soho in the yeah. late 1960s well, yeah, the, yeah you know yeah. there's the village i mean they're kind of weird but in soho you got Satanists. you got satanists. it's just it's how it's, it goes it's what happens it turns out that she ends up giving birth to satan and she accepts it the end yeah she gives birth to satan, satan. And, and accepts, she accepts it. it. And she rocks the cradle at the end. Yeah. She's shaking the bassinet. Yeah. Um, Nixon. Uh, okay. Potentially. Yeah. Now, this comes out during the election year. So, yeah. Now, here's what Roger Ebert said in 1968. Quote, and I'm pulling quotes from his review. When the conclusion comes, it works not because it is a surprise, but because it is horrifyingly inevitable. Rosemary makes her dreadful discovery, and we are wrenched because we know what was going to happen and couldn't help her. This is why the movie is so good. Both Rosemary's Baby and Hitchcock's classic Suspicion are about wives. Uh, Suspicion came out at the same time. He Mm. often would set movies against each other to Mm. explain them both. They're about wives deeply in love who are gradually forced to suspect the most sinister and improbable things about their husbands. But Cary Grant in Suspicion was only a bounder and perhaps a murderer. Only. Only. The husband in, in this one is an agent of Satan himself. Yeah, yeah. an unwitting yeah. agent, by the way. Okay. Uh, and we didn't even really believe that since he was Cary Grant. Rosemary, on the other hand, is forced into the most bizarre suspicion about her husband, and we share them right up, uh, we share them and believe them. Because Polanski, oh yeah, it's a little problematic. Yeah. Uh, because Polanski exercises his craft so well, we follow him right up to the end and stand there, rocking that dreadful cradle. That baby is the Vietnam War. We are now rocking that cradle. Okay. Uh, remember how our trusted leaders got us into that late 1940s and early 1950s war? Remember what social ills our trusted leaders ignored and let metastasize at home because of that war? Yeah. Okay. Uh, remember why the U.S. government got the United States into it in the first place? To prop up the French Empire and avert a communist domino effect that ultimately didn't happen? Yeah. Meanwhile, the French got out and our government ended up holding the bag yeah. uh, and then propping up a known-to-be-failing dictatorship in South Vietnam, violating the Geneva Convention, stopping democratic elections from happening, and further investing in a war that didn't impact us all? Yeah. Yeah. All of that. Yep. Yeah. So by 1968, over 20,000 Americans had died over there, and there was no end in sight. A presidential candidate was in secret talks with the other side to stall negotiations at the end of the war so that he could win the election 
and simultaneously there's a draft going on killing those who are loyal and radicalizing those who are loyal mm. to the point of having to leave the country. Yeah. Yeah, or, or uh, you know, get a note from a doctor indicating you have bone spurs. Well, yeah, or get five deferments um, yeah. because, you know, your dad helps the Department of yeah. Defense. Whatever, you know. What? Yeah, you know, like you do. Yeah. Join the National Guard. Yeah. Man, those Democrats are cowards. Air, Air, National, Air National Guard. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wait, no, no. That's, that's the other guys. Yeah. Uh, the baby Rosemary's rocking in the cradle is the Vietnam War and or potentially okay. Nixon's presidency. Okay. So in the late 1960s, a lot of people were taking Timothy Leary's advice. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. Yes. Okay. A lot more people are doing more than just communal drugs. Barbiturates are on the rise, the kind where yeah. you just melt away. Uh, so are other escapes, like cults. You might remember Charles Manson, yeah. the, the failed beach boy. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Charles Manson, the failed beach boy, also uh, Jim Jones. Yep. Well, that's late 70s. But Jim Jones gets but started in the early started 60s. Yeah, in the, in early, the 60s. And by, by 71... That's true. He's, he's big in Oakland. He's really big in Oakland, mm-hmm. and and his church and movement are really starting to look really culty. Which sucks. By that point. Because he, like, on the one hand, he had such a wonderfully progressive platform. This is how cults work, though. Yeah. He, I mean, he was incredibly multiracial. Oh yeah, I mean he, well, he really he 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 was the the, the yeah. one the one thing that can really be said positively about him was that he really did believe that a utopian ideal would be one mm-hmm. in, in in you know that was post racial yeah that you know the problem was um, he had that great idea married to inherent megalomania and and uh, uh, possibly bipolar yeah. You know tendencies that led to him being, pardon my French, but bug fuck crazy. Yeah, a little bit nuts. And 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 paranoid. Yeah, I so, mean just yeah. So so you've got all these things happening. Yeah. And, and they're symptomatic of not being able to trust a system that heretofore had been fairly reliable, yeah. dependable, and accessible for mainstream America. Okay. I do not yeah. want to speak for the the marginalized groups back then. Oh yeah, because no. I'm pretty damn sure the be... all the anti-gay laws, all of the anti-race mixing laws, mm-hmm. all of the anti-black people laws, all of the anti-exclusion act laws, all of those things, all, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But for like middle America, for the majority culture, right? It for the dominant culture, for the dominant. Yeah. Uh, even they're starting to unravel. Because oh yeah. Now the U.S. government is run by people who look just like the ones that they used to trust. Yeah. But they're not trustworthy. Yeah. It's like something has invaded them. Something something has happened to right. them. They're not like they used to be. The desire to disengage and just accept it was pretty overwhelming. And fewer and fewer f- folks were voting, too. Uh, for instance, in 1968, 60.9% of eligible voters voted. That was down 1% from the previous election. Oh, wow. In 1972, that number drops to 55.2. Now, that's a big fucking drop. That's 5.7%. Big drop. More importantly, the voting age got lowered in 1971 by constitutional amendment. Yes. That should have added 10 million to the rolls. It should have. And it still dropped. Despite that, it still dropped by 5.5%. Especially in light of the fact that the youth could now vote on whether or not to continue the war that was killing them. 
Well, by that same point, yeah. most of that demographic had been so completely turned off by the figures that were then in power. But they literally are facing an existential threat that a vote could help solve. And they were like, no, nah, it's not worth it. This is this is a bullshit system. They are turned off. Yeah, they well, are pushed away. Yeah, well, yeah. By the people yes. who are killing them. Yes. yes. And, and, and that's, you know, yeah. the, the perennial problem mm-hmm. with, you know, younger generation voters is they're still yep. hunting unicorns. Mm-hmm. You know, to to borrow a phrase from and uh, bless you know, them for other it. People. Well, yeah, but you know, after a certain point, if if it's between, you know, Sauron, yeah, and somebody who's not and Sauron, a donkey, yeah, like it's I'm, not I'm a, gonna, it's not I'm a unicorn. Gonna, I'm gonna vote. I'm gonna well, vote yeah. for the horse. Yeah. here. I'm not. I'm not gonna yeah. let. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take positive action to make sure the the mm-hmm. the Lord of Darkness doesn't wind up. Yeah, you know, taking taking over. Oh yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, that, anyway. that drop in voting rolls is commensurate with the loss of faith in the U.S. government. Um, yes, I, I stuck to I believe it was a Quinnipiac polls going all the way back. So I was comparing apples to apples. Mm-hmm. Uh, from 1968 to 1972, trust in the government drops by about four percent. That's pretty close to the drop in voting roll too. Yeah. Right? Uh, from 72 to 74, it drops by another 16 percent. Holy crap. Yeah. All right. Well, and, you know, think about what's happening, right? Yeah. Now, that's huge, and it continues to plummet after that fact, which I found fascinating. You know what else was on the rise, though? What? Possession movies. Okay. 1973, Exorcist. Yes. It grossed $444 million. That is the equivalent to $2.5 billion today. Oh, yeah. It was one. Of, it was a runaway, huge runaway success. For an idea of scale? Huge. Yeah. It made about as much money as Avengers Endgame has made. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. It was that quintessential. Yeah. It was the measuring stick against which all others would be measured. This is before blockbusters existed, by the way. This is before yeah. Jaws. This is before Star Wars, before Jaws, it before com- any of yeah. those yeah, and it came out movies. It came out during Watergate. Uh, trust in the government was below 46% and continuing to drop the figures that I have are for the year before and after oddly enough it doesn't actually measure 73 it measures 72 and 74 Um, it goes from just over 50 to the mid 30s it's insane how quickly it drops I mean it makes sense given what's going on but that is a huge goddamn drop oh yeah I would say it's the only time such a dip has been for justified reasons because we have seen similar dips, but it's so obviously partisan. Oh, it's, well, yeah. It's Republicans being pissed at a Democrat's in charge. Yeah. And it's Democrats being pulled further to the right. People can't yeah. point to a real and legitimate reason when that happens. It's just a personality-based argument. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need to discuss Exorcist too much. I mean, it's, it's, it's a well-known plot. Um, it's part of our social fabric. Yeah. Uh, shit, a couple years later, Saturday Night Live had a skit with Richard Pryor on it. Yeah. And I just recently, like a week ago, realized that there was a brilliant rhyme in it. So, have you seen the skit with Richard Pryor? No. Okay, so not Jane Curtin, uh, Lorraine Newman Lorraine is Newman. playing oh, the little yeah. girl. Yeah. Richard Pryor and I forget, I think it's probably Richard Pryor and um, Garrett Morris okay. are the priests. <laughs> And uh, okay. yeah, and that's, so that's, that's a departure. Yeah, but yeah well, okay. and it's it's very much a this is what would happen if they were black priests. Oh, okay, skit. All right. So Lorraine Newman's uh, saying all kinds of terrible things, and they're like, oh, I don't believe you, blah blah blah. 
And then uh, Lorraine Newman says, Yo mama so socks that smell. Throws a yo mama joke in there. It's 1975. Yeah. Richard Pryor affects this stance where he stands back on one leg and shakes his head, like kind of looks at her and says, What'd you call my mama? (laughs) Yo mama so socks that smell. And I was like, oh, that's funny, haha. Ha. And then he's like trying to choke her, and then they're like pulling him off of uh, her and shit like that. And she calls him a jive turkey at one point. Yeah. And well, all yeah, kinds of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But the Yo Mama So Socks That Smell line is a rhyme to the actual line in the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't catch that until this year. Until like three weeks ago. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we are a, a uh-huh. long, long since post exorcist yeah. generation. We but, were we were yeah. born two years after the movie came out. No, so you by the were. Time we were. You oh were. yeah, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I was nearly I was, three years after nearly, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fuck off. Yeah. So here's so, what here's here's what Roger Ebert had to say. Okay. He didn't like the movie, okay. uh, although his criticisms and his distaste peel back at what's really happening in American culture. Okay. He says the year 1973 began and ended with cries of pain. It began with Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers, and it closed with William Friedkin's The Exorcist. Both films are about the weather of the human soul, and no two films could be more different. Yet, each in its own way forces us to look inside, to experience horror, and to confront the reality of human suffering. I skip around a bit. Uh, Friedkin's film is about a 12-year-old girl who is either suffering from a severe neurological disorder or perhaps has been possessed by an evil spirit. Friedkin has the answers. The problem is that we doubt he believes them. We don't necessarily believe them ourselves, but that hardly matters during the film's two hours. If movies are, among other things, opportunities for escapism, then The Exorcist is one of the most powerful ever made. Our objections, our questions, occur in an intellectual context after the movie has ended. During the movie, there are no reservations, but only experiences. We feel shock, horror, nausea, fear, and some small measure of dogged hope. This movie doesn't rest on the screen. It's a frontal assault. It may be that the times we live in have prepared us for this movie, and Friedkin has admittedly given us a good one. I've always preferred a generic approach to film criticism. I ask myself how good a movie is of its type. The Exorcist is one of the best movies of its type ever made. It not only transcends the genre of terror, horror, and the supernatural, but it transcends such serious, ambitious efforts in the same direction as Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. I am not sure exactly what reasons people will have for seeing this movie. Surely enjoyment won't be one. (laughs) Again, we're going there to traumatize ourselves to the tune of $444 million, the equivalent of $2.5 billion. Uh, let's see, uh, surely enjoyment won't be one because where we get here, what we get here aren't the delicious chills of a Vincent Price thriller, but raw and painful experience. Are people so numb they need movies of this intensity in order to feel anything at all? It's hard to say. I would say it's not. I would say he's, he's begging the question there, to be honest. Even in the extremes of Friedkin's vision, there is still a feeling that this is, after all, a cinematic escapism and not a confrontation with real life. There is a fine line to be drawn there, and The Exorcist finds it and stays a millimeter on this side. Wow. This review is contemporaneous with the movie. He's talking about the times he's living through, and it's clear that the times he's living through fit this movie. Okay. And now I'm going to jump in about the relationship between those two films. Cool. So... Um, 
Rosemary's Baby was written by a a guy who got his bones as a screenwriter named Ira uh, Levin. Okay. Uh, and Ira Levin basically wrote it to be a very secular possession film. Okay. So she she winds up she carries right. the spawn of Satan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the help that she receives is not from any kind of religious authority. Right. It's from a neighbor. I don't remember enough of the details yeah. about the story, but it's but it's from, you know, it was a, neighbor, a neighbor couple, yeah. A na- neighbor couple who goes to the public library right. and looks up all the books and all the all the information right. and all the lore. And then in the end, I mean, all of that winds up failing mm-hmm. and, you know, it winds up having this this very Dionysian ending where chaos wins. Yep. You know, and the the one of the descriptions I've heard about her her reaction at the end of the film mm-hmm. isn't isn't like well, this is what it is. I have to I have to live with it kind of acceptance so much as it is she's so thoroughly traumatized and so terribly shocked ah. that that's the only the only response that she can have is to sit and rock the crib because she's she's not there anymore. She's stunned into she's, complicity. She she has she has been you could say stunned into complicity or she has been ground down to non-agency. Mm. If that yeah, makes sense, that one hundred percent does, given what I'm seeing historically. Yeah, yeah. Now, so that's so that's Rosemary's Baby. Okay. Um, and that was written by this guy Ira Levin, who yep. who specifically wrote it to be anti-authoritarian, anti-religious authority, anti-religious okay. hierarchy, anti all of that stuff. Now, uh, Blatty is the author of the novel of okay. the exorcist okay um and i gotta find his first name here i apologize here um but anyway blatty is the last name we're gonna go with that for, mm-hmm. for the moment uh the novel came out in 71 mm-hmm. and um blatty was a devout catholic that seems who, obvious who wrote his novel mm-hmm. as a response to what he saw as an assault on the church by Rosemary's baby. Gotcha. So Rosemary's baby is the church is never even enters into it. They never, right. they never go into a church. They never right. talk to a priest. They never talk to any of these people. Yeah. Blatty literally believed that that was putting people in, in spiritual peril. Oh, wow. Like he, he was, he, he was a committed believer and he believed that that message was dangerous. I mean, like in in the sense of the Counter Reformation happening because the church was convinced that Luther and Calvin and all those guys were imperiling the souls of their right. followers. And so he wrote Rosemary's Baby. William Peter Blatty is his name. He wrote. Yeah, he wrote. He wrote the, the Exorcist. Yeah. Sorry, Blatty wrote the Exorcist specifically to bolster the role of the old priest and the young priest and the church sure. and the institution. And these are the people who, who know how to protect us from, yeah, they're going to save this, us. The, they are going to save us. Right. Um, it's important to note that it was in the late sixties, early seventies that a rapid and dramatic decline in the mm-hmm. number of new priests was a big deal. Right. Within the, it was a crisis within the church. Um, a because, Jesus crisis. Because, well, yes. Heathen. 
Uh, and 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 we begin with good day, sir. <laughs> so wow, that took uh, a while. Yeah, that one did. Uh, you're slipping. Um, <laughs> Got to nail that down better. Um, I'm going to hell for that one. But um, it'll be your cross so, to bear, not mine. So, well, yeah, because you're not even a believer. But That's right. but um, so Blatty wrote the book mm-hmm. as a response to this crisis in in the declining number of new vocations for priests. Uh, as a and also as a response to Levin, he basically was like. This this thing by Levin is garbage, right? And you hippies and, are fucking yeah, it up. Yeah, you, you hippies are yes, yes. You hippies are fucking everything up. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, Levin uh, basically wrote The Exorcist off as a bad copy of his own work. <laughs> so these these two guys wound up having a literary feud. Oh, that's for great. Years. That's afterwards. like Gore Vidal and uh, what's his face? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Vidal uh, Sassoon. Yeah, or or Freddie and Jason. Right. You know, uh, within the genre. And so uh, there, there was a whole article that a, a Facebook friend of mine who is a horror author. Oh. Uh, uh, well, he, he would call it, he, properly, he's a weird fiction author, and that slides into horror. Sure. Uh, slithers into horror. Uh, and, and so he, he hates the fact that Blatty won. Mm. Because The Exorcist wound up becoming the template Right for all of the possession films going forward. Oh yeah, and and Dwayne, if you're listening, hi. Uh, being a weird fiction author and being a committed non-believer, really hates the fact that Hollywood has basically been obsessed with hell and demonic forces forever. He, right. He he thinks it it dumbs down the entire genre. He's he's got okay. he could he could he could spout. Uh, very very well written screed about it for a long time, mm-hmm. but you know I, I think I think while we're talking about these two movies and we're talking about them as a reaction to the moment in which they happened, mm-hmm. it's also important to note their relationship to each other. Yeah, that that literally The Exorcist was written as a mm-hmm. like you're talking about as a we have to find the right white guy in a position of authority to save us. That's literally what The Exorcist was written as an exhortation to do. Right. Because because Rosemary's Baby is subversive to the extent that it's entirely secular. Mm-hmm. And, and that it ends on a deeply Dionysian note, whereas... There is the the still there Dionysian note of the fact that you know the priest has essentially taken the demon into himself mm-hmm. in in an act of Christian self sacrifice for Regan, mm-hmm. uh, you know at, at at the end of the film. But right, right. but he is still victorious in saving the poor innocent little girl. Right. Uh, through an act, God, this just struck me. Uh, through an act of self-sacrifice, mm-hmm. because that's what we would want our people in positions of authority to ultimately be willing to do. Well, and frankly, that's what we'd seen them doing for the last decade. JFK gets shot in the head. Yeah. RFK gets shot in the head. Martin Luther King gets shot in the back of the neck. Malcolm X gets shot all throughout his torso. Through, through, yeah. Um, Full of holes. Yeah. Yes. Like, a lot of people getting shot. A yeah. lot of people dying for a their causes. Of, a lot of people being martyrs. Yes. Yes. So. Yeah. So yeah, I, I wanted because the, the funny thing is, you, mm-hmm. you, you were we, we we outside of recording, we were talking about sure. you know you 
you had mentioned that, well, you know, I wasn't really feeling this one until I figured out what my thesis was. And then it really all clicked and everything yeah. fell into place. And about the same time we had that conversation, mm-hmm. my friend Dwayne shared oh, that's funny. this article from Diabolique magazine about Blatty and Levin nice. and, their, and their feud. And I was like, well, this is kismet. Yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 think, I think that's an important note in yeah. the midst of the rest of your thesis. So I'm going to stop in just a little bit because okay. we're at the end of this episode okay um but I, uh, I i do want to piggyback onto what you said exorcist set the formula uh, it really did set the formula yeah um, in no. many ways it followed a formula that was already there but it, it also set it, it crystallized it um what what tv tropes would refer to as the trope codifier yes um, and by this time, it involved uh, the, the the formula now involves good triumphing over evil, and evil that had snuck into its innocent vessel. Yes, Rosemary's Baby didn't do that. No, the Vietnam War was ending in 1973 under Nixon. We had something called peace with honor. Yes, Watergate was also underway. <laughs> yes. You have this dovetailing of things. It looked as though someone did care about justice and governance. Maybe not the guy in charge. But people in positions of authority were doing what needed to be done in order to right the ship mm-hmm. and save us from you know, setting our entire country on fire. Mm-hmm. So the American psyche was so damaged by this point that justice and governance were kind of hollow shadows of the bulwarks that they once were. Now again, for... Yeah. Dominant culture. Yeah. I'm answer I'm I'm talking for white middle America. Yeah. Um they're more impressions than they are the things that they have come merely to offer a silhouette of. And, okay. And while Friedkin couldn't know that Ford would ultimately pardon Nixon. Yeah. And Kissinger would never be put on trial for war crimes <laughs> all over the world. Yeah. The scent was in the wind that there was a group of people whom justice just didn't touch. Yeah. And if not, then during Watergate, trust in the government would be on the rise. Because we'd be seeing the process. We did see the process. We saw that justice was prevailing. didn't matter for shit. It continued to plummet. Because we saw the process and nothing was ultimately happening. Yeah. Well, we, we got... The devil out of Regan. And it wound up moving into a different vessel. So did we really fix anything? Yeah. And we lost our priest. Yeah. <laughs> so Oh, we know. lost the old priest. Right, yeah, yeah true. We still have the young priest. Yeah. But now he's But got, he doesn't but he doesn't know, he know what the hell. Right. He and he's and he's definitely gonna have a crisis of conscience. Yeah, well yeah. So alright, so that's the end of the first episode yes. of Possession. Uh, as as my buddy George says that I'm so fond of saying, what have you gleaned so far? <laughs> um, well, I, I think it's it's reinforcement of the theme that keeps coming up mm-hmm. forever when we do this and, mm-hmm. and is essentially the central thesis of, of what we're doing, mm-hmm. which is um, every whatever whatever you set out to write, you're writing about now. Yep. And whether you are doing it consciously or not, that's what winds up coming out the end of your pen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think going back over the extent to which middle America was 
deeply, deeply traumatized mm-hmm. by the beginning of the 70s, I think is a point that, that gets, that, that doesn't get a lot of, doesn't get a lot of play. No. Um, you know, I think it will now, given that our current crop of historians, though they've dwindled in number by three quarters as much as far as people having a vocation to the, to the field, um, they are looking at memory as a part of what creates the historical record that's in the historiography now as, as a school of thought. And this emphasis on trauma in the last five years has really, I mean, it's in psychology, but it's informing well, it's it's in psychology. It's informing everything, and and interestingly, it's it's been it's become a very big thing in education. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, we we spent a whole year at my site talking about how are we going to you know we, we have to take into account that we're dealing yeah. with kids who are coming from trauma backgrounds with trauma, trauma informed practices, trauma informed practice. Yeah, so we're seeing um, trauma informed so history starting yeah, to come and, out, and so that that. I, I see what you're saying, yeah. but that's that, that that's going to be part of the historiography now. Mm-hmm. But the depiction of the 1970s in popular culture, true, has not taken that into account. It's you know tie dye and hippies in the early 70s, and it's you know disco, right, and and uh, bell bottom pants, right, and you know all that kind of stuff in the late 70s. It's all the affect. It's all the affect. It's all yeah. the surface. You know, oh hey, do you remember? Right. Everything was olive, and you know how tacky were the colors and all that kind of stuff. If if uh, last year it was either last year or year before mm-hmm. on Netflix, uh, my wife and I wound up binge watching our way through that 70s show oh okay and that did a really good job at highlighting how social mores have changed yes it did a really great job uh illuminating the ways in which uh social ideas were changing Mm -hmm. you know uh the the mom of the primary character's family goes out and gets a job right dad is really not not happy about that doesn't like the fact that that's necessary it's the right. breadwinner he, he shouldn't she shouldn't have to do that he still wears a hat he still he still wears it you know it's it yeah. and, and it's it's all of these all this transitional stuff that was going on gets illuminated really well and there is a brilliant moment where they talk about the 76 election huh where red stands mm-hmm. up and says you pardoned nixon in this in this tone of indignation like how could you do that wow and i guarantee you red voted nixon oh yeah yeah because that was the character yeah you know but but yeah and and but but the fact that he stood up and and was like you know how that that is the tip of the iceberg as far as recognition of the the moral trauma mm-hmm. that everybody had been put through by mm-hmm. that point and that's the extent to which we get it. Yeah. You know, and it's it's just not something that that comes up. You well, know? you know, it's a sitcom. It's in popular culture. It came out after Friends. It was a Friends clone set in the 70s in a lot yeah. of ways. Okay. You know, I, you I, yeah. six people. I, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I, I'm using... But you're that absolutely as right. a as a as a specific kind sure. of you know stand-in for the way the 70s sure. get portrayed kind of everywhere else. Yeah. Uh, you know, unless you're talking about something really gritty, you know, like it, it, if you do a police procedural set in that period, it's it's, it's going to be it's going to yeah. be grimmer. It's not going to be ha ha, but yeah, it's yeah, still yeah. not really going to talk about 
That's true. That it, it's going to talk about how uh, life on Mars. Mm-hmm. Talking about you know a detective show police procedural in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Life on Mars shows how you know police brutality was a matter of course in, right. in a lot of departments. Uh, you know, and and how just the police culture. Yeah. And and our expectations of law enforcement have changed since then. And it was pretty grim in a lot of places and, sure. and, and, and very gritty. But it was still the surface impression of look how different times were back then. And it didn't actually go into. Yeah. Look how really deeply fucked up everybody was by the times they were living in. Yeah, it's kind of like reading history. It's kind of like learning history by reading a a school textbook versus looking at the primary source. Yeah. Versus it's like it's like reading a book about Uncle Tom's Cabin instead of reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yes. So, yeah. So that's that's what sticks with me. Yeah. All right. Well, uh next episode I will get into 1979. Uh, okay. And then I'll I'll go a little farther, hopefully. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we'll discuss uh, further possession movies. Okay. Uh, but for right now, I'm gonna put you on the spot. Um, and uh, what uh, what books do you have that you could recommend? Um, let's see. I was just trying to sit down and read one. Oh, um, Orthodoxy. Okay. On Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. Speaking of Catholicism, uh, it is a Christian apologetics. Mm-hmm. So. Not for everybody, um, but I find that the older I get and the more life experience I get, the more I can identify with Chesterton's view of the world and of faith. Okay, and um, I find it I find it comforting, and his language is simultaneously very kind of homey and uh, very articulate. Nice. So, how about you? Uh, there is a book. It's a self-help book. I don't normally okay. go for self-help books by uh, Hiroyuki Nishikaki. Nishigaki. Okay. Um, called um, How to Goodbye Depression If You Constrict Anus 100 Times Every Day. Malarkey or Effective Way. My God, it you is, actually did it. <laughs> it is on Amazon for $16. Um, and uh, I would just like to read to you uh, a description. Um, product description. I think constricting anus 100 times and denting navel 100 times in succession every day is effective to goodbye depression and take back youth. You can do so at a boring meeting or in a subway. I have known 70-year-old man who has practiced it for 20 years. As a result, he has good complexion and has grown 20 years younger. His eyes sparkle. He is full of vigor, happiness, and joy. He has neither complained nor borne a grudge under any circumstance. Furthermore, he can make fuck three times in succession without drawing out. In addition, he also can have burned a strong, beautiful fire within his abdomen. It can burn out the dirty stickiness of his body, releases a material fiber or third attention, which has been confined to his stickiness. Then he can shoot out his immaterial fiber or third attention to an object, concentrate on it, and attain happy, lucky feeling through the success of concentration. If you don't know concentration, which gives you peculiar pleasure, your life looks like a hell. Wow. That uh, guy really needs to hire a better translator. Oh, I I, I thought he was a native speaker. Um, <laughs> book length of 252 pages. Sweet mother of God, and puss. And here's the review. The first, <laughs> the first 90 pages are literally just copy-pasted from forum chat 
where people are making fun of the author while the author drops. Does exactly as advertised in aiding you in good buying depression, albeit not at all how the author intended. Speaking of, of authorial intent. Yeah. Just a taste of what this book includes. The first 90 pages are literally just a copy-pasted forum chat where people are making fun of the author while the author drops by, completely unaware that he is the butt of the joke and lands a few more gems for the forum crowd to rip apart. Anyway, uh, wow. I you know I don't normally go for self help books. No, um, but no. you know any kind of self help book where you can goodbye depression, I don't think is malarkey. So so, yeah. Or yeah. are you are you going to give credit for for where you got the recommendation for that? I I will. Um, and I I feel a little bad telling tales out of school because okay. she didn't give me permission to do this. But okay. my my good friend Julie <laughs> found this gem, um, and uh, turned me on to it. And I I tell you, my life is better. My life is no longer living a hell. Okay. So there well, you go. I'm very glad to hear that mm -hmm. for you. Yes. Depression. Goodbye. 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 I've dented goodbye. my navel one hundred times. Just during this very podcast. I didn't need to know that. <laughs> so, uh, for a geek... I didn't need to know that. <laughs> Why? Why? I was having a good night. We were all having such a good night. So, for, for a geek history of time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And keep your rosary handy. <laughs> and constrict your anus 100 times. Or don't.